The reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Acts, from chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, please would you open wide your sacred mouth and thunder from heaven, that we may hear your voice, echoing among us as we have opened the word which your spirit has inspired for us in front of us today. Shape us, we pray. Bring light where there is darkness. Perhaps even where hope has been lost, kindle it afresh in our hearts and our lives as we see here a portrait of Maturity and faithfulness and servant-heartedness. Would we be shaped in that way? For we pray in the name of the servant and the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat and let me welcome you. I've had a chance to speak to one or two uh, people who are here for the first time. It's great to have you with us. We're delighted you joined us here at All Saints. And of course, we've got some family and friends of our four soon-to-be deacons. You're particularly welcome. It's great to have you with us. We're glad you could join us here today at All Saints. The pastor and theologian E.M. Bounds begins his book, Power Through Prayer, with a sharp criticism of the church, which in his view has lost its biblical focus. Quote, We are constantly straining to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations to advance the church and secure the enlargement of the gospel. And he goes on to lament the prevailing tendency to focus on the wrong things to focus on structures and to focus on techniques and to focus on systems and to focus on institutions and to focus on processes and to forget the one thing that really matters. Where he says, I think it's the second paragraph, the church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. Ouch. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. In the context 
when he wrote in 1910, I mean, just think for a second what he'd say now. Think of all the things that the modern church is obsessed about, apart from the maturity of its members. In the context, Bounds is talking about the preparation of men for pastoral ministry, hence looking for better men. But the same principle might easily be applied to every other area of life, and indeed it ought to be applied to every area of life for the people of God. What the church needs is not a system. What the church needs is not new protocols. What the church needs is not new techniques, new methods, new institutions. All of those things have been tried, and every single thing that has been tried has lasted for a generation or less. What the church needs is men and women of faithfulness. What the church needs is men and women of integrity. What the church needs is men and women of prayerfulness. Power through prayer is the title of Bounds' book. Men and women of wisdom and maturity who love God and love his people and want to work hard to serve their families, to serve their church, to serve the world. Men and women who have counted the cost of Christian discipleship. Men and women who realize it's like you're not embarking on a journey which is likened to a kind of toboggan run down a gentle ski slope where you just sort of get on and hold tight and you get sort of swept along as you go. You're embarking on a 25-mile cross-country skiing expedition. But they've counted the cost of Christian discipleship and they, quote, count everything as loss except the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, Philippians 3. That's what the church needs. I think that's what we need. What we need above all else is not a new plan, not a new structure. I mean, I happen to think that Presbyterian structure is okay, pretty good. Certainly can make a claim to reflect biblical church order. And I think that many of the ways that we try to do things around here are okay or good. I mean, I'm responsible for quite a lot of them. If I didn't like them, I ought to change them. But really what the church needs, what the church needs is men and women and young people who are growing into young men and women of maturity and grace and wisdom and godliness and Christ-likeness. And it is in that spirit that we are today ordaining four new deacons, Justin, Cruz, Kyle, Noah. Uh, you will know if you're a member here at All Saints, but for the sake of those of you who aren't, we began a process last summer where I gave some teaching and guidelines on what you should be looking for in deacons and then we opened nominations, and you, the congregation at All Saints, nominated these men, whom we interviewed as a session of elders, and then we put them before you as a congregation for a vote, and they received an overwhelming endorsement as godly, mature men who are able and ready to serve the church, to serve us, to minister among us, as our current deacons have for so many years. And so now we can all relax because we've got the deacons to do everything. Thank goodness, because they're so hyper-competent. I mean, just look at them. The men whom you will see standing before you here in a few minutes' time. You just trust them with anything. Well, the job's done now. We can all chill. Anybody's got any problems, they can just call a deacon. Well, there will be a time when somebody's got a problem and they can call a deacon, but I think we all know, don't we, that that last bit was a joke, right? We, I mean, the reasons are obvious. First, the qualifications for deacons are just one way of depicting the aspirations of all Christian men and women, correct? 
You look at 1 Timothy 3, just to remind you of a few highlights. Deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. How much is packed into that? Because how many things that we do would not allow us to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience? Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. My goodness. <laughs> Yikes. Faithful in all things. Does anybody here not think that faithfulness is all, in all things is something to which we all ought to be aspiring? The reason that these men have been selected as deacons, and we did actually talk to and about their wives as well, is because they with their wives are examples of the kind of maturity that we all ought to be aspiring to, and that's what the church needs. The church does not need another system. Maybe what we need is a kind of AI-powered Facebook group. No. No, what we need is men and women of integrity and faithfulness and maturity. And nowhere is this more obvious than in Acts chapter 6. I mean, here you find the perfect example of where the deacons don't do it all. You, you've got in uh, chapter 6 of the book of Acts uh, a dispute arising about the provision of food during a period of hardship and famine in the early church. Just look with me at verse 1. In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, that is the daily distribution of food. And you cannot believe, you cannot be telling me, that what the deacons were appointed to do was to take over the peanut butter and jelly sandwich making rotor and just kind of sort it all out like that themselves. No, 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 no. What they were appointed to do was to deal with a complex and potentially very, very high temperature sort of division within the church's life. Just to remind you of some of the background, you've got the growing church, chapter 6, verse 1, increasing in number. And this time, like many times in the first century, there was a famine in Jerusalem with a consequent shortage of food. Now, end of chapter 4, one way in which this was alleviated was by people like Barnabas selling property in order to provide for those who had nothing. But this was going to get worse in the future, especially actually in the next few weeks and months in the book of Acts, as the church starts to become less popular and becoming a Christian might mean being alienated from your family. Well, who's going to look after you then if you're a widow, unable to provide for yourself? You really would be dependent upon the church for provision. And it's intriguing as well. Look in verse 1 again. It doesn't actually say, as many might assume it would say, that the widows were complaining about the lack of equitable food distribution. Look closely. What it says is a complaint arose among the Hellenists against the Hebrews. Now, both of those words are masculine nouns. The Hellenists uh, refers to a group of Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, and the Hebrews, Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christians. Both are masculine nouns. And it is their widows being neglected. So the situation is not the widows bickering with each other. There may have been some of that, but what Luke draws attention to here in the book of Acts is it's the men from these two communities within the church who are complaining, some of them, because their widows 
their elderly grandma, their great aunt Nellie, or probably not Nellie, not a very Hebrew name, is being neglected. And just think for a moment what that has the potential to do. Uh, it, it's likely that these were two language groups. Aramaic was quite widely spoken in the first century, but um, it seems that there were communities whose primary language, apart from that, was Hebrew, and whose, others whose primary language was Greek. And so they would have been in different kind of subgroups within the community, probably worshipping in different synagogues. We know there are different synagogues. One different one is mentioned in chapter 6, verse 9. Worshipping in different languages with different liturgies and different traditions. So this is, a, this is not just like, oh, who gets the biggest kind of amount of peanut butter on their bread? It's a, it's a cultural clash, and we know how, don't we, how deeply uh, ingrained cultural differences can cause strife and tension and arguments. This is the kind of thing which could blow the church apart, humanly speaking, send the entire project off the rails. And what's the solution? The solution is to appoint deacons. Not, as I said, to single-handedly take over chopping the bread into the right-sized chunks and giving it out to people, but rather to deal with the quarrel which had arisen among the men about their widows in these two communities. To take responsibility for leadership, to take responsibility for going to these men who are arguing and quarrelling with each other and dealing with the argument in a fair-minded gracious, thoughtful way, showing the kind of exemplary faithfulness and fairness which nobody could argue with. That's why, incidentally, um, verse 3, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. That's why that's so striking in this context, because these would have to be people with a reputation for honesty. Otherwise, well, the decisions that they made or the judgments that they made would not be persuasive to the, the side that felt most aggrieved by them. In other words, what we need, <laughs> what we need is a bunch of exemplary Christian men with exemplary Christian wives to jump into this community that is in danger of tearing itself apart and by their character, by their godliness, by their maturity, to show everybody else how it's done to be role models for the whole church. Your church needs you, deacons. I talked to Mrs. Loki about the um, outline in today's order of worship, and I asked, could the word you, as in your church needs you, be put in italics? And she said, well, the whole thing's in italics. So I was like, oh, I'm not sure quite what to do. Because if we put it in normal type, it'll look like a typo. Anyway, so anyway, I can do it now, though, can't I? Your church needs you, gentlemen, and your wives, and to everyone else, your church needs you to be the kind of men, to be the kind of women who will strive to grow towards the kind of practical, faithful, godly Christian maturity that you have seen in these men, which is the reason why you nominated them and then voted for them. What the church needs is practical maturity. In every area of life, you know, we, we could have almost any system of church government, almost any programs, almost 
any procedures and structures, and they'd all work fine if we were godly and mature and wise, and all of them would fall to pieces in six weeks if we were not, regardless of what they were. There's no system, no structure that can preserve an ungodly church, an immature church, from imploding. But by God's grace, what could, be, what could the Lord do through us if we were grasped by this vision to strive to be the, the very most Christ-like version of you that you could be? Who, what could the Lord do in you in five years' time? The church needs better men. The church needs better women. That's what it needs. And what's intriguing about this passage, as I was reflecting on it, is one of the things it does is to show what happens when a church gets this right. I mean, there's a great deal here. We could talk about the, the qualifications of the deacons and some of the social things going on to the surface. But what it actually dis- displays is how the Lord blessed this community when they, so to speak, got it right. It's like, what's that old saying? If you want men to, uh, I'm getting the... I'm butchering this quotation, but if you want people to, to um, explore the world by boat or something, I forget what the quotation is. Uh, don't teach them to build boats. Teach them to long for the open sea. Can you remember the quote? I can't remember what. In other words, if we're given a vision of what the Lord could do among us, maybe that's what would drive us. And this passage gives that in, in two ways. The first way is that the conflict was resolved the conflict that threatened to tear the church apart. And then the second way, verse 7, the church continued to grow. I want to look at these just briefly in the time that we have. First, this conflict was resolved. Just look with me at verse 1. We'll just remind ourselves of this narrative, and I'll just draw out a few details of it. Verse 1, In those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that's the twelve apostles, summoned everyone the full number of the disciples, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, just pause there a second. We're going to come back to this in a few minutes' time because what this isn't saying is that serving tables doesn't matter. What it is saying is that however you solve this, we mustn't neglect the other thing, the ministry of the word and the prayer, which is what they go on to say, verse 4, well, verse 3 first. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. You see how we've tried to follow something like that process here to get to this point with uh, Justin and Noah and Cruz and Kyle. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, and he's introduced here in part. Uh, a little more is said about him, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, because he's going to be the big speaker in chapter 7. And I, Luke often does this in Acts. He'll introduce somebody as significant because he's going to do something really significant soon. And then these other six guys, and they set them before the apostles, and they prayed and la- laid their hands on them. And as a consequence, the conflict was resolved. And you know it's resolved because it's one of those moments where you have crisis, solution, growth. It repeats throughout the book of Acts. I mentioned this last week or the, the time before that. Uh, You've got this crisis, the solution is found, and then verse 7, the church continues to grow and multiply, and the gospel goes forth, and the mission of God in the world continues. Now, let me show you just a couple of details here before we, um, well, we've got a bit of time, so. Notice first that the conflict 
was an indirect result of the church's growth. There'd only been like those 12 people in the church, or buddies, or friends, go back a long way. Well, you know, they're capable of arguing, we know that, because they're arguing quite a lot of the time in the Gospels. But if the church had been small, you wouldn't have had a conflict this big, okay? Verse 1, it's in those days when the disciples were increasing in number. It's when things are going well. I, I, sometimes people, other pastors, will ask me, now, how are things going at All Saints? I say, we've got all the right kind of problems. Because <laughs> the Lord is just adding to our number. It's a wonderful, it's the problem that the church has wanted to have throughout its history. And in many times and places it has. And we're in one of those times. It's wonderful. But growth always brings problems. Now, uh, with those problems comes mess. With those problems comes confusion. With those problems comes the potential for uh, resentment and frustration and uh, why is she getting more than me or why is she getting more than her? One scholar even suggests that the complaint is not about the distribution of food but about the distribution of responsibilities for the preparation of food. It's literally um, the widows who are being neglected in the daily service. That is to say this... You know, how come she gets to organise all the fellowship meals? I like doing fellowship... I can do fellowship meals. I, I can make perfectly good curry, thank you, and it's better than what we had on Wednesday night, actually. <laughs> Although I tell you, the curry that we had on Wednesday night, I wasn't able to make it, but I had it on Thursday morning, or lunchtime. It was spectacular. So thank you. But I could do better myself. If only I were asked, I wonder if anybody's... Now, I don't think that's actually what's going on because the solution is the appointment of deacons to oversee that ministry, but boy, could that be an issue as well. This is like an example of the kinds, many different kinds of things that we could argue about. Church life is always messy. Just imagine, some of you folks here were here at All Saints when there were three families. Well, wasn't it easy? Well, hmm. Yeah, you, you have small church problems if you're three families or four or six or 80 people or whatever it is. but you have this never-ending growth of problems to deal with, with the growth of the numbers of the congregation. And actually, one of the messages of the book of Acts is that is completely normal. Please, 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 don't ever think that because we're having to deal with problems of every kind that something has gone wrong. It's like children, when you're, parents, when you're disciplining your children. Like when your child needs a spanking... Well, yeah, he or she has done something wrong, but that doesn't mean that something's gone wrong. It's normal. And the way it needs to be dealt with is not by, oh my goodness, panic, embrace some new system, but principled, steadfast, stick with the biblical system. So it is here. Think of all the things that go wrong in the book of Acts. Deceit and opposition, and persecution, and famine, and division, and the refugee crisis, and cultural tensions, and false miracle mongers, and the gospel grows from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and by the time you get to chapter 28, it's in Rome. We, we must never make the mistake of thinking that because you've got problems, something's, we, we're doing the wrong thing. Maybe we should cap our numbers. Like, no. We, we will find a way, we will have to find a way, of striving to be those through whom the Lord extends the blessing that we're enjoying to whoever walks in through the door. 
striking if you look in verse 1 and verse 7. The disciples were increasing or literally multiplying in verse 1. Uh, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. The word multiply there is used twice at the beginning and the end. That same word is found in Genesis 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is not some option, right? It's not like, well, you could have a church that just wants to stay at, like, just me and my friends, or you could have a church that's interested in multiplying. No, God's mission is for the world to be filled with a community of people that is multiplying and seeking to reach outside its bounds and to welcome people in from outside, that it might continue to grow. The same word is used in Exodus 1, verse 7. You know what's going on there? That's when the Israelites are multiplying, increasing in number and multiplying. What does that provoke? That provokes Pharaoh to try and stop the multiplication. It is the enemies of the people of God who try and stop the people of God multiplying. So, so I guarantee, last week I asked the question, what do you think, what do you think is going to happen in 2024? All kinds of things are going to happen in 2024. Um, unknown unknowns. And some of them may be prompted by people we don't know yet. Some of what goes wrong, quote-unquote, goes wrong, some of the problems we have to overcome may be occasioned by new people joining. And there may be that thought that crosses your mind, you know, if we weren't growing so much, if, if we weren't multiplying, things would be so much better. Let me just remind you that it is Satan and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who are opposed to the multiplication of the people of God. Now, that's not great company. The problems that this church faced and the problems that we will likely face in the future, sorry to be a downer on your Sunday morning, will be occasioned by our growth. By people you don't yet know, or people you do, and whom you get to know better, in all kinds of ways. And the solution is not, not ever, to stop the growth. Because in the end, and this is a second detail that you want to highlight here, growth is not the problem, it's sin that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, you think about how um, how life normally works. Sin ruins everything. In fact, there's, there's a hint here that that's exactly what's going on. Um, the word translated complaint is used a few times in the New Testament, about eight times in total in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Seven of those times, it's in Exodus 16 and Numbers 17. And it refers to the complaining, the grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. So what you've got here is like a reenacted exodus. And Pharaoh wants to stop the multiplication and the Lord is going to overthrow him. And some of the Israelites are grumbling about the food of all things. And the Lord is going to deal with that as well, either by their repentance or, well, if you carry on and grumble about everything else, Numbers 17, no, 14... Um, you may find your bodies die and left scattered over the desert. It would be a perilous thing, wouldn't it? For us to think, how do we frame it? This time I've had enough. I want to go back to Egypt. 
You know, it was the people who wanted to go back to Egypt whose bodies were scattered over the desert. Another detail is worth thinking about, again, for ourselves as much as anything else. Did you notice that the problem that arose here in Acts chapter 6 was in an area where the church had previously been strong? In chapter 4, I've mentioned this a couple of times, you've got people who will sell their estate, sell their possessions, sell expensive property in order to care for the poor. In fact, Luke goes as far as to say that in a time of famine, in chapter 4, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them because there's such an ethos of sacrifice and of generosity among the congregation. This is an area of tremendous strength for this early church. And then what happens a few short weeks or a few short months later is the thing that they had been known for being good at starts to be the place where they stumble. Where are we going to stumble exactly? It's very intriguing. I don't think we are going to have disputes, to take this example, about, um, let's say, evangelistic methods. Maybe there's a lesson there. We're not really very good at evangelism. Perhaps that's part of the problem. But I I don't hear much of that. I think if if we would have an argument, disputes, it would arise in areas of our life where we have historically been blessed by the Lord. It would arise over matters of theological detail or political debate or liturgical issues. Boy, could we have a fight over the precise way to sing the Psalms. <laughs> or Christian education. No, that's, a, that's an old one. You, you want to start a fight in a CREC church? Start talking about different ways of doing homeschooling. People come to blows over which Latin curriculum to use. And it's interesting, it, it's in, in the things that, where the Lord has blessed us with relative strength, relative maturity, that we tend to slip up. Not slip up, that's a really soft way of talking about sin, isn't it? You, you recognize the theological point here that sin is parasitic on the good. Sin is a twisting or a distortion of that which is good. It's Augustine's point and Paul's point. What what sin does is it takes something good and ruins it. And the more significant it was, the more ruinous the fall. I mean, Saul did a lot of damage to the kingdom of Israel, didn't he? Because he was such a gifted and blessed man. A church that has been enriched in every way could do a lot of harm to itself and to others. If it doesn't learn this lesson, that what we need is that faithfulness, that integrity, that maturity, that wisdom. The church needs better men, better women. Finally, one other thought on this before we look briefly at the the growth that resulted. Sorting out this problem, I don't envy these deacons. Would you want to go to the Hellenists who are, like, great aunt Nellie is actually seriously unwell because of the inadequate food supply, Stephanus. 
What are you going to do? And you don't know what to do. I mean, Luke even hints at this. Just look in verse 1. Uh, your translations like mine say that this complaint arose, quote, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. It's possible that that's how we're supposed to translate it. It's possible that what, what Luke is basically saying is, yeah, these widows are being neglected, that's why the complaint happened. But it's not necessarily, there's a, the translation is, I think it's deliberately ambiguous. The word, Greek scholars, the, the word is hotir. It can mean that rather than because. In which case, Luke is saying, these guys were complaining against those guys that their widows were being neglected. Very intriguing, isn't it? Because if that's what Luke's saying, he's not endorsing the complaint. He's saying, this is what they're complaining about. You go figure whether it's justified. And in the reality of church life, just think about what's actually like to happen. It's very likely that if there is some truth in the criticism, it's not true in every case, but what's the temptation? Well, to grumble anyway. Luke isn't telling you what the answer is. You go figure it out. It's a masterpiece of theological narration because it transports us into the place where Stephen and the other six deacons would have been, not knowing quite what to do here. But boy, have we got some angry Hellenists. The first to make his case seems right until the other comes and examines him. And all of this mess, there's no system on earth that's going to fix this. So find godly men. Who's going to be the deacons in five years' time? If the Lord continues to grow us and we see another Granbury church plant, but I don't know, Arlington or Dallas or north of Fort Worth or somewhere down south. Nicole and I went for a couple of days to Waxahachie recently. The guy whose hotel we visited said, um, yeah, we'd love you to plant a series C church down here. I was like, okay, I'll add it to the list. <laughs> How many deacons do you think we need? I think we've got just about enough now. Gentlemen, where are the next guys coming from? Oh, somebody else will do it. Wrong. Please. Let's not be passing the buck. What the church needs is men of integrity and faithfulness and wisdom. And in consequence of that, not only was this division healed, but the church continued to grow. Briefly, let me point to this for you. Um, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The, the, church the church's mission continued because this uh, tension within the community was solved. Now, humanly speaking, this is what's going on um, that's the apostles' concern. In, in verse um, 2, they summon all the disciples and say, guys, look, we know we've got this massive disagreement and you guys aren't talking to them, or rather you are talking to them, but shouting mostly. Um, we, we can't stop doing what we're doing in order to sort this out. We must give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And it's striking, isn't it, in verse 7, it's the word of God that continues to increase. Let me tell you, there are many churches where uh, the pastors or preachers routinely are hyper-distracted from the ministry of the word and prayer by sorting out bickering. And those churches tend to starve for want of the bread of life, the word of God. It's not that the tables don't matter, it's that the word of God matters as well, and it's the word that continues to increase. 
And I, I honestly, I thank God for the deacons we now have. I thank God for the deacons we're about to ordain, for what you do to set Pastor Shaw and me free to minister the word and prayer. Because we, there's so much that these men, <laughs> don't they like, really? Uh, yes, they know that, right? They know that. That's why we have uh, voted for them with such enthusiasm, because we've already seen their service. There's so much that they do which liberates us to serve the word. But notice, there's this little note at the end of verse 7. Did you notice a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith? That harks back, of course, to what I talked about last week. You remember the Gamaliel test? Gamaliel, the wizened old Pharisee, Paul the Apostle's teacher, who stands up in the Sanhedrin and says, guys, don't go trying to destroy the church, okay? Because the fruit will show in the long term. If it's just another one of these enthusiastic movements like Feudus and Judas the Galilean, it'll just fizzle out and die. But if it's from God, then what's going to happen? It's going to carry on and be preserved, and nothing you do will be able to stop it. In other words, the test of the faithfulness of the church, the test, rather, actually, of whether the church is, is a divine institution, whether the living God is behind the church, is whether they can sort themselves out and remain united. So that's the test that Gamaliel sets up. And all the priests in the Sanhedrin are like, okay, that's a good idea. Let's wait and see whether the church manages to stay together or whether it's all scattered like Judas's followers or like Feudus's followers. And then what happens in chapter 6? Exactly what you'd expect. Here's a test. Is the church going to survive this? And the church does. What the deacons are here to do and what they are here to lead you all in doing, that is to say, striving to grow in Christian faithfulness, Christian maturity, what they are here to lead you in doing is the thing on account of which the divine character of the church will be known to the world. A very great deal rests on the character of these men and a very, very great deal rests on whether we all are committed to becoming more like them, and actually, more importantly, more like Jesus. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we thank you that we have a great man, our priest, as Pastor Shaw mentioned earlier, our Lord Jesus Christ, the servant, who wrapped a towel around his waist and got down on his hands and knees that he might wash the feet of his disciples. And we pray both for these four deacons and their wives and for our two existing deacons and their wives and also for ourselves that we might become more like him, lowercase d, deacons, servants of the church and of the world, that the church may continue to flourish, the world may continue to be transformed into the likeness that you have prepared for it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.